So we're going to be in the book of Romans. You can keep your Bibles open there. I remember uh, when my grandfather, we called him Daddy Hug, was still alive. Uh, I remember very distinctly one time he told me, if you really want to understand the gospel well and preach it well, then you really have to get a hold of the book of Romans. And um, I think it's a, a really, really deep book. And uh, so, so important that God's people know the gospel that's proclaimed in this book. Um, also, it's something that I've been reading more lately because uh, when Gertie and I go to Guatemala, we're going to be teaching from the book of Romans. But I just want to consider what I think is, and I think is expressed here, is uh, one of the major themes of the book of Romans. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the theme of the book of Romans. And I think the... Uh, doxology here at the end of the book of Romans really lays that out well. And I want to reread it, and uh, I want to just consider what is it saying. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever, through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's kind of a, a long sentence and a little bit difficult to break down. But if you look at the beginning and the end, you kind of get a sense of what the, the main message is, with, and there's a lot of other things in the middle. Now to him is the beginning. Then at the end, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. So that's the major sentence we have here. Now to him, and then a lot of other things, um, and then finally, be glory forever uh, through Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, the, the, the crux of this doxology at the end is the idea of glory to God or God's glory. And that's why it's called uh, doxology, in fact, because the word doxology comes from the word doxa, which means glory. And I would say, uh, if we were to break it down to one theme of Romans, I think this is it, the glory of God. Um, and uh, if you look throughout the book of Romans, you really can see the glory of God. Now let's define that for a moment. What do we mean when we say glory? Uh, glory is splendor, it's awesomeness, it's... It comes from a word that means weight. Uh, when we say something is a weighty matter, it has deep importance. Um, it's weighty. God is that, right? And uh, there's just so much about glory, God's glory. Um, ultimately, the gospel itself, which is proclaimed in Romans, is all about God's glory. So we're going to be looking at that. That is the major theme of the book of Romans. And I want to just kind of go through and see where we see the glory of God and ultimately, the idea that also we can share in that glory. We can seek that glory. Uh, we can hope in that glory. There's all kinds of ways that um, this idea is, is seen in the book of Romans. First, uh, let me show you the other, or another, doxology in the book of Romans, and it's at the end of chapter 11. Um, it says something very similar to what is said in, as, as, as the main crux of it, I believe as what's said here at the end of the book. And so it's Romans 11, 33 to 36, which is a quoting of, of several different Old Testament passages. 
says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths without tracing or beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So both of these, uh, I think, emphasize the idea that God um, is glorious. He deserves glory. Uh, for how long? Forever. And uh, also, both of them refer to him as wise, to the only wise God. Um, in chapter 16 and in chapter 11, the depths and the riches of his wisdom and knowledge it talks about. Um, so God is glorious. And... Um, ultimately, this book is therefore not about what we have accomplished or not about us ultimately, but it's about what God has accomplished. And it's all for his glory. Um, how awesome he is, what he has done. Um, and he will save us ultimately for his own glory. I want to actually look at that idea just for a moment because I think uh, that's why this is the theme of Romans is because um, his all that God's done for us in saving us is for his reputation, so that he's glorified in the world. Um, look at Ezekiel 36 just for a moment. This is one of the only times we're actually going to go outside of the book of Romans. But I think it lays out really clearly why God saves us and how that's connected to his glory. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36 is obviously very prophetic because I believe it very much has to do with us today. Um, verses, we're going to begin in verse 22 and read about 10 verses. Um, in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. You will, then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. So this passage just lays out the idea that um, God is ultimately acting 
on, uh, to save Israel, ultimately to save us, um, not because we've been these great people, right? not because uh, uh, there's something good in us that he saw and he said, okay, I'm going to save them. It's because of him. It's because of his glory, his reputation among the nations, which we profaned, right? By our sin, um, we've profaned God. Um, Israel, who was even more so God's nation, had profaned him because they had not lived the way that God, um, that was God's will. And so he's going to act on this basis, um, that he uh, is going to give himself glory. And I think that's what Paul is arguing in the book of Romans, that God has, what God has done through Jesus Christ will cause his name to be glorified forever. Um, and think about the implications of that. The fact that we are sitting here right now, 2,000 years later, talking about God, worshiping God, glorifying him for what he's done, um, is a testament to this idea that when God says, I will glorify my name forever through what I've done in Jesus Christ, that that's still happening. And it will continue to be done forever, um, even long after this world is gone. Right? Uh, God will continue to glorify his name through what he's done in Jesus Christ. The reason why we can be cleansed, the reason why all those things that were talked about, a new heart is given, his spirit is put in us. The reason why all those things can be, can be spoken about, which are also seen in Romans here, um, is because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So we're going to, uh, if you turn back to the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, we're actually going to just walk through the book of Romans and see this idea both in how God glorifies his name um, in Romans through what he has done in Jesus Christ, and then also how, uh, how the book talks about glory as something that we can share in and that we should pursue. Um, so we'll start in Romans chapter 1. And uh, for uh, those who are familiar with the book, how the book of Romans is laid out, you know that the first two and a half chapters or so is all about um, how wicked we have been, right? It's putting everyone under the same umbrella of sin. And that's uh, where he starts here. Um, in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So throughout human history, God's glory has been suppressed and exchanged, ultimately. We lost sight of the glory of God because we gave it up for other things. That has been all of our story. That's uh, the song we sang, Fairest Lord Jesus. That's uh, uh, the message that nothing compares to the, to the glory of Jesus, of his glory. But this is the central problem of the book, that we've all exchanged God's glory for uh, what we, some kind of beauty or something we see in, in, in creation or uh, some other thing. And it's, uh, we became fools by doing that. You remember back in the doxology at the end of uh, the book, it says, to the only wise God be glory forever. Uh, we claim to be wise, it says here, but we became fools by exchanging God's glory for some other thing. 
continue with me um, looking through, if you go to chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. It says there, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases my, his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? So the argument in this part of the book is, um, what if someone were to say, well, because when I sin or when I lie, uh, God's just seen to be more exalted uh, in contrast to me. So if my sin ends up glorifying God, then... What, what's the problem with sin? Um, and of course, Paul will argue that that's completely wrong. In fact, uh, just later on in the same chapter, uh, in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, in fact, sin does not make God, does not glorify God. It falls short of his glory. It ultimately, as Israelites had done, profanes his glory, profanes his name. And uh, so uh, you have this conflict between ultimately our sin, the things that we have done, the ex glory we've exchanged for something else, um, and God who remains glorious in the midst of it all. Um, but when, uh, as, as we were just there in uh, 323, I want you to think about that idea that we've fallen by our sin, we've fallen from his glory. So it's not just God, uh, just glory of God, and it has nothing to do with us at all, right? Because um, ultimately God created us to be like him. He created us in his image. There's a glory that God has bestowed upon, human, upon humankind, um, like, like Psalm 8 says. Um, David is amazed at, that, at the glory that God would have given humans, in a sense, um, as he created us in his own image and gave us a privileged position in his creation. But we've not lived up to that at all. Um, we've fallen from that glory um, that he once gave us. And um, if you look uh, later on in Romans 8, Romans 8, we're going to be jumping around a little bit because I'm trying to follow kind of a line of thought here. Uh, but in Romans 8, verse 20, so when sin entered the world, notice what it says. Here in verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So in fact, the whole creation, because of sin, has been subjected, it says here, to frustration. Right? There's a curse that came upon creation when sin entered the world. But God's hope is that he's going to bring his children back to freedom, not the enslavement of sin, but freedom, and he uses the word here, glory, right? Uh, he created us to be in his image, and he wants to bring us back to that glory of the original uh, way that he created us to be, um, ultimately by what he's done in Jesus Christ. Um, in chapter 9, then, uh, in verse... 16, it says, It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on those whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those he wants to harden. 
And then look in verse 23 as well. It says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to objects of, of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So there's a whole lot to say about chapter, uh, about chapter 9, but I'm just going to summarize in this way, that God ultimately punishes and shows mercy for his glory, for his glory. And God is the one who makes that decision. He's the only wise God to ever make that decision. He desires, um, ultimately, it says here, to uh, make the riches or the deep treasures of his glory known to his people. That's his desire. Um, and it says there in verse 23 that he prepared in advance that, that glory. Uh, he prepared that glory in advance. Um, he wants us to share that glory. And uh, he can use people like Pharaoh, who he raised up to proclaim something about him and all the earth, his power and his greatness. Um, and he can also use his mercy and his, the objects of his mercy, his children as a way to show forth his glory. But again, the whole center of this book, no matter what God chooses to do, is that in all of his choices, in all of his judgments, it's all about his glory, right? And you see that there in chapter 9. Um, jump back just over chapter 8, maybe at the same page that you're on there, um, and look at verse 17. Uh, glory sounds like a, a wonderful thing, right? Um, I want glory. Like, I want to share in God's glory. But uh, it doesn't always come through easy things. It's, uh, it's a challenging thing, right? Because in 17, it says, And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If, the, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in, an or, in order that we may also share in his glory. So ultimately, glory um, does not come through... Just, uh, it, it comes through suffering, right? It comes through tribulation and trial. Verse 18 says the same thing. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so ultimately, uh, it's not possible to uh, share in God's glory without suffering. And it's far worth it. Right? There's nothing that could ever compare to the glory that God has prepared in advance for his people. And it's a glory that we pursue. Look at, go back to verse 2. I'm sorry, chapter 2. Chapter 2. In chapter 2, it says in verse 7, To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So this idea that we can pursue glory, and ultimately it's God's glory, right? We don't have any glory of our own. Um, we're pursuing God's glory. Um, and that it's something that God has reserved in advance for us. It's something that we can share in as we live for the Lord, which involves suffering. Um, and I think the idea, too, here is that uh, seeking God's glory is that we desire God to ultimately change us into uh, what we were created to be. Uh, we want to share in that image. We've not lived up to that, but we want God to 
uh, bring us to that point uh, where we do live in his image, where we live as he created us to be. We're freed from the bonds of sin in this world and free to live uh, and not fall short of his glory anymore. Um, if you would now turn to chapter 4, this is the, the last one of the, we have two more passages. This is one of them. Abraham was one of those who sought God's glory. And I want to look specifically at how did Abraham give glory to God? How did Abraham give glory to God? Because this ultimately serves as a model for us. How is it that we seek his glory? How is it that we pursue God's glory in our lives? In verse 20, it says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. So you all are familiar with the story of Abraham. He uh, had no children, and he was old, and his wife was old. And uh, they were way beyond childbearing years. Yet God, that one night, took him out to look at the stars, and he, told, he gave Abraham a promise. He said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as these stars. Can you imagine like how unbelievable, just unthinkable that promise would have been? That there is no way that can happen. You know? I mean, uh, there's just no way that that could happen apart from God, right? And yet, it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That belief, that faith, that he had, it says ultimately, through that faith, being fully persuaded that God can do whatever he promised, that is how Abraham gave glory to God. He gave glory to God that way. By knowing God can do whatever it is that he wants, and by God accomplishing all that he has done for us, it does give him glory. And uh, this this uh, idea is also connected to that do- doxology at the end of Romans, um, because I, I'm only touching on one of the themes that I think this doxology at the end touches on, which I think is the major one. But you could really take each phrase in this doxology at the end and trace a theme throughout Romans. That, that could be uh, uh, your homework, right? Like, and you could do any, basically any of these ideas that are seen at the end of uh, the book here, I believe you can trace throughout the book of Romans. But notice uh, the second phrase after now to him. It says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. So part of this idea uh, uh, in Romans is that God is able. He deserves glory because he is able um, to establish us in his gospel. He's able to set us, set ourselves up. Um, that apart from God, uh, we would not have the power to do. We would have no ability to do. But with God, who establishes us um, in his gospel, we have the power um, where we have uh, this opportunity, ultimately, to be saved. Because um, despite all the odds, God is able to save us. Um, And 
it says here in chapter 4 that God that these words were not written just for Abraham, but they were written for us. In verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was discovered, sorry, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Abraham became a model of ultimately what is what saving faith looks like in our lives too. Uh, Abraham believed God when he gave him this incredible promise, just one that was unthinkable, unbelievable. And it's really true for us as well. How is it that one who has strayed so far from God, one who has lived a prodigal life like the prodigal son, could ever come back and hope to be received? I don't... I don't. I, I know. I couldn't. That couldn't happen with me. Um, apart from God, right? Um, with God, it is possible. Even Paul here in the letter, in in this letter, in chapter seven, he says, "What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subjected to death?" Paul knew it is hopeless. There is absolutely no way. When he looked at his body, he thought the same thing. Maybe that Abraham, when looking at his his body thought. There's no way I can have a child. Right? And Paul, when he looked at his body, he said, there's no way that in this flesh I'm going to ever be able to please God. No way. Um, but the, the end of that sentence, after he says, wretched man that I am, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul also had saving faith. And that saving faith was that he believed God could do the impossible and save him, even him. And if any of us have saving faith, it is that kind of faith. It's that faith that um, God can do the impossible. He could even save me. He could even do that. And that brings glory to God. I want to look at one other passage um, before I kind of tie things up. Uh, In the very next two two next verses in Romans, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So now that we know that God justifies us through this kind of faith, that we can have peace with God, we can have a relationship with him and all those things, What do we do? Now we boast in this hope of the glory of God. We know God is able to transform us. The, uh, we know that God is able to take this wretched man and turn it into back into his image. Right? Hit the glory that um, I had totally squandered and exchanged for other things. God can restore. And uh, I boast about that. About the hope that I have in that glory, right? The glory of God that I can now share. And that the very next verse talks about that and how um, it's ultimately through sufferings that uh, we have that hope. It says, not only so, in verse 3, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So I think that helps us in a way see the hoping in the in the glory of God um, as hoping in God's transformation of us um, and restoring to that glory that He once created us to be. I want to look at one final thought that I th- that kind of ties this all together. Um, the Book of Romans, of course, as we've stated before, it starts off um, that uh, with sin and putting everyone under that umbrella. Uh, 118 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Um, so reading just the first three chapters, uh, or the first two and a half chapters, you might think, uh, who can be saved? Right? That's uh, a logical thought. But I want, I want to look at the, by the end of the, chap, by the, end of the book, uh, chapter 16 is really just a list of, of people that, mainly, a list of people that Paul wants to greet. Uh, Priscilla, Aquila, Epinetus, Mary, Andronicus, Junia. He just lists all these people he wants to greet who he knows uh, from Rome. And I just want to show you the contrast here. Like, in the beginning, all God is angry, uh, wrathful against all wickedness, all ungodliness. Everyone's under the same umbrella. Yet at the end, end, we have this list of like real people's names who are God's children. Like These are people who have really had this faith that, that in, the, in the unbelievable, who have been restored to God's glory that, um, that they had exchanged at one point for something else. Um, this long list of faithful people that have given their lives to the Lord. Um, so it just kind of is verification that all that's in the middle of Romans, all these things in the middle, it worked, right? What God did, all the things that he done through Jesus Christ, it worked. There are really saved people. Um, and notice what it says there in verse 19. Just how positive the end of this book is. It says, everyone... This is 1619. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So this book that starts off with defeat, the wrath of God, right? Everyone is under sin, ends with victory. God's going to crush Satan. He's going to defeat him. And all these people um, listed here, all of us, we get, to, we get to live in that victory, right? We get to benefit from that victory. Um, and again, that, that honors God. That gives him glory as he has accomplished this. Um, so that, uh, that's really what I want to leave, with, leave you with is God deserves glory. And, it's, and he's... Uh, what he's done through Jesus Christ ultimately gives us that hope of glory as well. The hope of sharing in God's glory, being transformed to be like him, and what God did for us worked. It's something we can believe in, um, something we can have faith in. And uh, if there's anyone who uh, needs to come forward or anything, um, I'd love to encourage and help anyone. Um, I, uh, I always hesitate saying that, knowing that I very much myself also need your encouragement. Um, and so let's keep praying for one another, confessing our sins to one another, and we'll now sing the last song.